So John 14, 15, very famous verse dealing with love and obedience. And so before we jump into the passage, I think we've got to set some parameters. We've got to set a context, really set a foundation, I think, for us. So let me ask you this question. What does it mean to love? It's a pretty generic word. A lot of answers can be given. And that's a word that I use almost every day. I tell my wife, I love you. Many of you in this room have heard me say to you, I love you. And there's a context for that love. And the first day I met you, I did not walk up to you and say, I love you. That might be a little strange. To, to help us understand kind of the context of love as it relates to John and Christ and obedience here in John chapter 14. Uh, I want to present kind of a foundation. Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive foundation in any way. It's, it's really probably going to be elementary. It's the, it's the foundation of the concept of love. And we will build upon this foundation as we continue to walk through John's uh, interaction with Jesus and his last words to his disciples. But in this case, we're going to specifically look at love toward a person, not just love in general. So just to kind of push everything out, we have love for ice cream and all kinds of things out there. But love for a person, and specifically as it relates to God or to Christ. So love for God. So here's kind of the three key foundations that I think we have to establish when I start saying the word love for Christ, we all have to have the same understanding. We all have to be agreeing on what that is. Okay? So, we tend to love someone. First of all, point number one, we see that they have value, worth, or beauty. Right? And I don't mean beauty in the sense of looks, but in general. So, in the case of the context of Christ, when we look at Christ, He is God, our Creator, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal. The list of Christ's beauty and worth really could be endless. So when you look at the value of Jesus, this person we're going to be saying we love, there's tremendous value within this person alone. He espouses plenty of value and beauty. And then the second part of the foundation, and most important, to the foundation is our understanding of love as a personal history or connection to this person. So in the case of Jesus, what is the personal relationship, connection that we have with him? He is our redeemer, provider, and friend. That is an extremely intimate connection to that which we find value in this person. And then the third, which I think is Part of the foundation, but really is a derivative of the two together. So you put these two together, and what ends up happening is this. The result of this is the, uh, the outflow of our love, which is the person. I would say it this way. It's the effect of our mind, our bodies, and our emotion is all connected to this outflow of value connection. So, for instance, the relationship that we have to this value in our mind is, is how it, it affects the way we think and process information. It's influenced by it, right? Can you, can you guys see this? You say you love Jesus, this person that you value. So how you think about this will influence the decisions that you make. Your body is how you act on this information. What you do or won't do. What you say or won't say. Right? What you will involve yourself in. And then lastly, our emotions. I'll be totally candid with you. Some of these songs... I was singing, my emotional response to it was I wanted to cry. But I knew I was about to preach and I didn't want a snotty nose in the pulpit. 
But I think about the emotion because it's connected to the relationship and to the value of this person. So joy and sadness are connected to this relationship of love. That's kind of the foundation. Now, I would argue that Scripture tells us that these, these are the three ways in which love can be broken down. Which is um, point one, point two, and point three. Or value, connection, and then our emotion. Now, I'm sure you can find illustrations in your own life where love for someone or an individual has changed, right? In most cases, it starts with the personal connection that you have to it. There are people early in my own life uh, that I grew up with that I consider to be my best friends, people I had deep affections for because of the connection. Well, that connection is now gone. I haven't seen them or talked to them in probably almost 20 years. And so I would say that my body, mind, and emotions are not affected by that relationship anymore. I don't adjust my thoughts or actions. I don't get sad or happy because I don't think about them very often. But this is not true in every case. Distance isn't always in that way. Of course, even Jesus said, I'm leaving you, and he's leaving the Holy Spirit. But I would say the affections for my father, who is no longer on earth, have not gone away. My emotions... The decisions I do or don't do, I still are affected by him. And so it's not necessarily always a distance issue when you're thinking about this idea of love or loving someone. So with this foundation, I want to approach John's text. I think it will help us make the connection to what Jesus is trying to push on the disciples. I think we will see the same pattern established by John throughout his gospel, this is kind of where I got the pattern from. Uh, I'm not so wise to say, let me see how I would describe love. Because <laughs> then it could be broken down and probably should be. Should be. So John uses the word love 39 times in his book. It's even how he describes himself in the relationship with Jesus, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. So you could say that in a book this size, using or speaking of the concept of love is uh, probably a big theme for John in his book. So there's a force that's driving all of John's words. And you can see even from the beginning and even chapter 1, the introductory of God's love for us, or the concept of love, or what love looks like, starts the book and flows throughout all of the chapters as it goes through. So let's see if we can identify this pattern so far in John so that we can embrace it and it really will help us understand what John is saying in verse 15 and following. So point number one, which is establishing value, right? Establishing worth or beauty. So Jesus has established the worth of of himself and and his beauty for 13 chapters. Let me give you some points as illustration. He said, I am God. Well, their value right there is like point number one. Drop the mic, we're done, right? He is described as the creator and the sustainer of the world in chapter 1. He is he's seen, we've seen multiple times, as the great healer. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. He's compassionate. So you start seeing this picture of Jesus. And it's being described as someone who espouses eternal value and eternal beauty. And then the second point, which is made clear in John's book, which is the point of John's book, which he says, I write these things so that you might, what, believe. So, 
He's, this is the connection that John makes between us and this one to whom we are loving. He says he is your shepherd. He is your redeemer. He is your provider. And then eventually he describes us as being his friend. No greater love than this, than what? Than a man lay down his life for his friends. Now John, in verse 15, is showing us how this relationship will be directly joined to our minds, our body, and our emotion. Okay? So let's read verse 15 now. So value, connection, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see the connection there? Can you see the flow, the foundation that John has established on what is love? To us reestablishing the kingdom. Jesus has purely proven his power. He controls storms, he feeds thousands, and he can raise people from the dead. He'll be a great king. He'll be an amazing king. What's the argument before this context? Who's going to be the greatest with Jesus? Who's going to be the second in command? Which, you know, James and John even walk up and say, hey, can we sit on either side of you? And Jesus says to them, well, I'm leaving you all, and you can't follow me. (laughs) Wait a minute. That's not the context. Not only that, many of you are going to abandon me, Peter. Not only that, there's a traitor among you. So their entire economy is now gone. They don't trust each other. They don't trust the relationship with Jesus. And now this massive kingdom that's supposed to be brought in is now obliterated. So it's not bizarre. It's not so bizarre. They begin to wonder just a little bit about this validity of this man. (laughs) Okay. This is what we signed up for. We left everything. And now you're telling us everything we left for isn't going to exist anymore. So are you sure you're the right guy? Because this isn't matching up. Read with me verse 8 real quick of chapter 14. So Philip said to him, Lord, (laughs) why don't you show us the Father? And that'll be enough for us to believe what you're saying is true. (laughs) That makes sense. Jesus just pulled the carpet out from under him and they're afraid to stand back up. So you've given us a lot of instructions here, Jesus. At this point, things that we're supposed to obey once you leave, and some of these are quite difficult to digest. They're very different than anything we had heard previously from the Father. So this is the connection that they're trying to make. Trust in me for your relationship to the Father. Trust that I will provide forgiveness. Trust that I will provide your needed holiness. Trust that I will provide what is needed to glorify the Father. This is what he said so far. Everything that you are putting your trust in is gone. I'm establishing something else, and I am at the center of it. You need to trust that. So this is a lot in their mind. Are you sure you are everything you said you are, Jesus? Are you sure? Because we're about to stake everything on you. Now, can you just prove it to us one more time (laughs) that you truly are enough to do all that you have commanded? Look at verse 9. Jesus says to him, I have been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who can say who, uh, how can you say, show us the Father? He's saying, listen, I have given you enough evidence for you to trust and who I am. So this finally leads us to 
John 14, 15, in, in this context that we have now created. His words are designed to bring them comfort, not fear, which is typically how this verse is used. He knows these men love him. It's very obvious. They have proved it over the last three years. Not perfectly, but it is clear through their mind and emotion and their body. There's a deep affection for Jesus. When Peter is about to cut off the ear of a man, trying to cut off his head, that's a pretty clear demonstration. So he uses this love to comfort them. If you love me, which clearly you do, you will keep everything that I've commanded you. Now, it is important to understand that there is a future tense here in this verb. Which uh, older translations like the King James, I think, um, confuse this a little bit. Jesus literally says that the keeping of his commandments will come in the future. If you love me, you will, future tense, which is being used here. This is not an imperative, it's a future tense. Keep my commandments. It's a promise he's making. And the connection is to what? Love. So men don't worry. Your affections for me will bring you to the point of obeying me and what I have given you. In other words, Philip, you want to see more? You have enough. Do you love me, Philip? Then that's enough. You'll obey. I know you don't feel that it's enough. I know you don't think it's enough, but your affections for me is enough to bring obedience. So how is this accomplished? We will look at it in depth next week. But just to give you a little bit of a preview of that, look at verse 16. How is he going to accomplish the obedience? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Which is the promise of what? The Holy Spirit. So even your obedience is secured in the power of the Father, which is next week. And there's a reason why I can't do it this week because it's too much. So we're just going to focus on 15 and some other verses. So it's very important at this point I clarify something I think often is confused and I've alluded it earlier. Jesus does not say, nor ever says, obedience is how you love me. He did not say that. That is important. He did not say, to love me, obey me. Right? Is that what's in the text? Or in any text anywhere? No. Why is this important? <laughs> because it, is, it completely ruins everything he has established at this point in the relationship. Everything. What is he constantly trying to prove to them? No amount of obedience can establish love. So the source of love, so you have to ask yourself, then where is the source of love? The source of love is not of obedience, otherwise he would have said so. For the last 14 chapters, Jesus has been exposing the source of love to them. The source of your love is what, according to John? The Father. It's always the Father. If you say that you have love for Christ, it's because it has been given to you. Let me see. Let me just show you real quick. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to to race through these. Let me show you what John has done with love so far. There's a positive and a negative. 
So in John 3.19, this is what he says. He says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. What is he saying about your affections right there? Left to yourself when the light shows up, you hide your face. You turn away. You hate it. Why? Because you naturally love that which is opposite of God. 542. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Well, how does he know? Because when they look at Jesus, they hate him. They look at Jesus, they hate him. This is connected to Ephesians 2, right? What does he say? By nature, you're children of wrath, desiring to obey your father, which is Satan. If he, uh, John eight forty two, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. <laughs> so where is the source? Source is not in your obedience. The source is God. So the wicked depraved heart is dead in sin and cannot and will not love God unless God implants his love into them. So to look at Christ and have any affections at all towards him, the conclusion of it is, is a miracle. Well, if you understand that foundation and Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey. Don't worry. Because it's not you. And it's not based upon you. And it's not up to you. It's an act of God. It's not an act of obedience. It is a gift. Love is a gift. And it comes to us by grace, not by works. Just to put it as simply as possible, you cannot observe God's love and put it into your heart. God's love is put into your heart and then you observe it. And that is so good. And I'm glad that's not up to us, but that is another time. I think this is why it's important. John later on writes another epistle. In John 1, 4, 419, he says, this is why that God loved what so we love. John says, we love because why? God loved us first. So our love is a direct outflow of what has happened to us. It's not what we are doing to us. Okay, that's the foundation. Therefore, here's the connection that we're going to make now. Obedience flows from this supernatural love. That's what Jesus' point is. Now look with me how John speaks of this several more times just in this context. We're going to jump down to verse 21. John 14, 4, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You see the connection there? He says it differently this time. It's the outflow. He does not say obedience is how you love me. He says, if you obey, it's obvious you love me. And he who loves me will obey, will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So obedience is the result of love. It comes from love. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and I and we will come to him and make our home with him. So it's not, we, I'm not trying to make an argument based off of one verse. I'm making the argument based on the entire context and then the entire book. It is a little scary to think because we have been so programmed to think of it as my obedience equals how I love Jesus. But it's not. Look at, uh, I'm going to just read you a couple more uh, passages. First John 5, 3 says this, for this is the love of God. Now, listen real quickly. Whose love? This is God's love, right? For this is the love of God. And where is it? In us. 
God's love is in us. So he says this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Wow, what a connection. God's love, obedience. Amazing, right? Are you, are you following? You can say no if you're not. Just kidding. Uh, John 2, 2 John 6, it says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. I mean, John says this over and over and over again. 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, or to love him. How is it that we've come to know and love him? If we keep his commandments. It's fascinating. So in all of these passages, what is the driving force? What is, let me put it this way, what is the focus Is it obedience to his commands? Is that the focus? What's the focus? It's God's love. It's his love. It's assuring us. It's confirming it. It's reminding us where it comes from. I recently had a sermon sent to me. And the title of it was Nine Points to Know if You Are Saved. I was like, man, I just need one. But what are the other eight? And what do you think the majority of the points we're all focused on? Obedience. Obedience. Friends, if your obedience is not the assurance of your salvation, it has to be something else. And what does John pound into the heads of the disciples? It's God. It's God's choice of putting his love upon you. Now listen, false believers can absolutely obey and prove themselves to be believers. And Jesus says when they stand on judgment day, you know what he's going to say to them? I don't know who you are. And he means no, not in like, I don't, I'm not aware of your name or your personage. He says, I don't know you affectionately. His point was, Obedience does not gain you the love of the Father. In Hebrews, we are told that people can absolutely grow up in the church, learn the do's and the don'ts, and have no affection for Christ. Do you need Jesus to be a good person in the culture? Yes or no? No. You don't. That's why it's so dangerous to think obedience... Is what's required. It's not. It's the evidence. As James says. I think at this point it's very important that I clarify that I don't think our obedience is not important. I'm sure you probably know this, but I don't want to get criticized later. It is very important to Christ. Otherwise, he would not have mentioned it in the text. Right? If it wasn't important, he would have not mentioned it. To be clear, I wish that I could perfectly obey Christ every day of my life. Now, for selfish reasons. Because life would be that much easier. We think about it. To love God and to love everybody around me perfectly. I just, I wouldn't be impatient like I was this morning. It's a dumb light on Beechcroft. They need to fix that thing. I wouldn't be angry. I wouldn't be short. I would be satisfied with everything that God has given me. I would never be 
lusting after other things. Perfectly obeying Christ is like awesome. Who doesn't want that? That's, you're, you're crazy if you don't want to obey Jesus. That's all I'm saying. This is why John says obeying Jesus' commands are not burdensome. They're not a burden. Now, obeying the law is a burden. It's a burden that you don't want to bear. Now, back to John 14, 15. This isn't the threat. Obedience is not the threat. It's the promise. A wonderful promise. If you have love in your heart towards me, you'll obey me. Which I hear and go, good, because obeying you is like epically awesome. I just can't seem to do it. So what becomes the focus then? Obedience? Is that what becomes the focus? No. Our love for Christ becomes the focus. Now I want to focus the rest of our time on, on really two points quickly. And kind of see the connection here. I think we have to answer these two questions. Here's the two questions we've got to answer. First of all, question number one, what are the commands of Jesus if we're supposed to obey them, right? And number two, how do we remain in his love? Because that's how we obey them. So those are two questions we're going to quickly answer and then fully unpack for the next several weeks. So if I've left you with a lot of questions today, don't worry, we have much more time together. Now, when we think of commands, we often think of moral commands, right? The moral behavior of the sermons on the mount, sermon on the mount. Or I would say the do's and the don'ts, right? Do's, don't do this, do that. Uh, this can be confusing, and I can see, um, I can see how the love that I have for Christ gets confused when I have moral failures each day. So, think, I mean, just think about your week so far. Uh, we've been dishonest at some point. Uh, envy, anger, lack of patience, lack of compassion. Those are all moral failures, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that's pretty confusing. If you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. But yet I look at my life and go, not even close to keeping his commandments. If he's talking about moral failure or morality. What commands has John given us so far from Christ in John's gospel? So let's just use the context from John. John's been writing to a certain people. Typically, you're supposed to sit down and read this like you'd read a letter. A letter. So one sitting. So in, you, know, you probably don't remember what was in John 2, do you? Or John 4 or John 5. So what commands has he given us so far? Let me read to you some of them. John 1, verse 12. Receive me. It's command one. Receive me. Follow me. 143. Believe in the light. Believe in God. Believe me. Earlier in John 13. That you love one another just as I have loved you. John 13 as well. Serve each other as I have served you. Same chapter. Ask whatever you wish. John 15. Oh, sorry, John 14. So in the context, the commands of Jesus are not necessarily referring to it. You won't find any commands of morality because they're not in there. They're not re referencing morality up to this point in the narrative. 
So Jesus is referring to have, to, the commands are to be trusting and resting, receiving from him. Loving God and loving each other. Those are the commands so far. There's one other command that John clarifies for us later that will help us tighten this up a little bit, which is in 1 John 1.9. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which is related to the relationship part that we have with Christ, right? He is our redeemer. Therefore, confessing our sins makes sense. So one of these commands is to live, in my opinion, is to live in repentance with him. It makes sense. When we fail, not if, but when we fail, we come to him for restoration. So if you love me, you'll repent when you fail. Repentance. For me, that's pretty simple and basic. That is not burdensome. Wait a minute. When I mess up, I just have to come tell you about it? That sounds like a great deal to me. (laughs) I like that deal. What's the next command? Well, the next command, he says, is to love God. I mean, he says that in chapter 1. And then later on, we read in chapter 13, it's to love each other. I mean, John literally says... The way the world will know that you're my disciple is by what? How you dress, the kind of car you drive, the kind of music you listen to, the hairstyle that you have. What does he say? About the love that you have for one another. That's the command. It's pretty simple. Love God, love others, and repent when you fail at either of these. That makes sense when John says, hey, these things aren't burdensome, guys. <laughs> This is why Paul gets angry when someone comes up and adds the law, adds to the law. Hey, don't let anybody put a new law upon you. The things that you have to do. Jesus clarified his law. It's pretty obvious. This is why it's not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Well, I used to read that, and I was like, Well, John, that's easy for you to say, because you understand what he's saying. I don't know what he's saying, so therefore it's hard. (laughs) Obeying Jesus is hard. And now I understand what John means because I never understood the foundation of love, the structure of love, and the result of it being obedience. So what are the commands? Love God, love each other, and repent when you fail of those two things. And what is the motivation to love God? And what is the motivation to love others? And why in the world would I want to repent? It's because it's the outflow of my love. So think of it logically. If I'm not loving God as I should and I'm not loving others as I should. Is it an issue of grit? Discipline? What's the issue? Let me make the connection. Affection. So your affection. It's connected to your love for him. So how do we remain in his love? Well, praise the Lord that for the next few chapters, he's going to tell us just how to do that. But... I'm not going to leave you hanging. (laughs) I'll send you out here with something. Going back to our explanation. Value, point one, right? Value and beauty. And what connects us to that value and beauty? The personal connection, which is how we're experiencing that value and beauty. And the result of that is the obedience side of it, which is our mind, body, and emotion. So what keeps us connected to the value and the beauty of Christ? Man, The gospel, right? 
It is the connection that we have to the Father. It is the connection that we have to Christ. This is why the gospel is not just for the lost. It is not for the lost. It's for us every single day. It's to those who need to be reminded of their connection to Christ. Your connection to Christ is not your obedience. Your connection to Christ is God's love and grace that he poured out upon you and left nothing for you to do. And he says, from that position you obey. From that position you seek to obey my commands. So it is this reminder to us of why we died to our old self. This connection is, we left it behind us. Why we abandoned our own attempts at salvation and righteousness. So as we've already sang multiple times today, the gospel is that constant love song that flows through our hearts and restores our affections back to Jesus. This is why I hate songs. I'll be frank with you. I hate songs that are about what I'm going to do for Jesus. You know what? You can't even control whether you're going to take another breath tomorrow or right now. You aren't in control of anything. Well, this is what I'm going to do for Jesus. Really? <laughs> this is why the reformers and the Puritans always said, if the Lord wills, almost after everything. Almost after everything. Because it's not up to you. You, you can't do anything for him. Unless he allows it, unless it's his will. I want to hear songs about what he did for me. And how safe and secure I am in the midst of my weakness. So the cross keeps us centered on the love of Christ. Why do I love Christ? Well, look what he did for me. Look what he did. No greater love than this, than a man should lay down his life. And then he refers to the enemy as his friend. And he says, I lay my out for my friends. Oh, and by the way, I did that before, before you even knew who I was. And for those of you who knew me and rejected me, I did it while you rejected me. This is the only message that I would argue from Scripture that can motivate our hearts to love God. We have all been in context where motivations comes through fear and guilt. You better do this or else. And is driven by guilt or fear. And there's little room for failure in those contexts. <laughs> That's why many people, when they hear of the love of God, they have zero affection in their heart. Oh, man, God just seems mean and like a big ogre. Because all the things that he requires of me, they're burdensome. I can't do it. Repentance. I feel like that I just need about, you know, the, probably the greatest repenter of all is Martin Luther. I mean, he would repent of his repentance. Well, I don't think I repented enough. I'm going to repent of my repentance now. I mean, that's insanity. The priest stopped allowing him to come in. It's like, no more, Martin. We don't have five hours today to listen to you. But this is into what's happening. If you're in that context of obedience equals love, it's the connection here. Is How could God love me if I keep struggling with the same sin over and over and over again? How could I be a Christian if I just don't feel anything within me? I, I, I don't have that excitement that other people have. 
I don't raise my hands during worship. I don't shout hallelujah. I don't talk about all these amazing books that I've read. How can I really be a Christian? I hear of love and I feel nothing. I hear I should obey and I don't want to anymore because I've already tried that. It doesn't work. Well, it is possible that you may not be a believer. That is truly possible. Or, (laughs) you've been living underneath so much law that God's love has been lost in your sight. You've been blinded to it because the cross is not your center. The gospel is the light in these dark moments. And what is the gospel? I never want to assume in here that we know what the gospel is. This is the gospel. That God chose to love you. Not that the good news isn't, hey, guess what? You can choose to love God. That's bad news if you're dead. The good news is that God chose to love you. To put his love in your heart. Because you can't put it in there. And then he proved his love by killing his son in your place as his enemy. And then he adopts you, he gives you his name, he gives you his home, and then he protects you from anything and anyone forever. And he says, I don't lose any of my children, ever, because they're mine. That means you can't ever lose it. You can't even lose it. Because it's not yours to lose. You didn't lay claim on God. You didn't decide to follow him. I have decided to follow Jesus. No, you didn't. (laughs) you didn't. He decided to love you. And one day you woke up following him. Now, does that message do anything for you? If you're in the, if you're in the bottom of the bottom and you hear that message, it's like, man, I think I might just stand up. I think I might just go towards that message because nothing else works, nor should it. If you can see and listen to that message and go, yeah, that, I mean, I don't know about like a deep affectionate, large affection, but man, that, that, that message sure does do something for me. Like, I, yeah, I could see how someone would love God if that was true. If you can say that, then my encouragement to you, a friend, is then go farther into it. But if you look at the gospel and go, nah, who needs Jesus? Then yeah, you, you're not a believer. If you have no affection, the gospel does nothing for you. Then you and I need to sit down and talk. And allow God's word to wash over you. But if it's true, my encouragement to you then is rejoice. Run to the love. Run as fast as you can. Come to him. Sing with us. Praise with us. Pray with us. Rejoice with us. For you are his. It's a great way to live. And if you lack obedience, which you do, then look to your love of God, not your ambition. One thing I will absolutely never do is give you keys on how to obey God. If you're lacking obedience, there's one issue at stake here. It's not your, you know, willpower or plan. Why do I say that? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. I mean, it's like that simple. It's not complicated. So if you lack obedience, look to your connection. And what's your connection to Jesus? The gospel.
recently I watched a movie. came out just this year. I, I thought it was older, but then I realized it came out this year. And it's, um, it's kind of a documentary about a missionary. His name is Richard uh, Wormbrand, if you've never heard of him. He was a Lutheran missionary, or a, actually a Lutheran pastor from 1909. He was born in 1909, and he died in 2001. And he lived in Romania. And I actually got the opportunity when I was in high school to kind of see where he served and where his church was. But in 1948, he publicly said communism and Christianity were not compatible. Now, if I got up and said, you know, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is not consistent with Christianity, people would say, you're dumb. <laughs> and they would write me off. There might be like a tweet about me. Nobody knows who I am. He said this on national radio in front of everyone. And that's not the part that's important. The part that was important is that he spent 14 years in prison for it. And I don't mean with three square meals and a TV. I actually couldn't finish the movie. I skipped a lot of it because it was so hard to watch. Um, so I saw most of it to the end. But this is what fascinated me about the movie. They tortured him because they wanted to know where the rest of his church was so that they could imprison them. I mean, the Russians are atheists during this time. Absolutely illegal to have any type of religion. And what encouraged me in the movie is that in prison, of course, they're in prison with a lot of other believers. And they would get together. And you know what they would get together to do? Preach the gospel to each other. Why? Because it was the only connection they had that made sense in the midst of all that pain and suffering. Every comfort of life was removed. And I don't credit Richard at all for his strength. I say, man, look at the power of God's love in that man's life. Praise be to God that he could endure that because of God's love. Not because I'm going to give Richard a pat on the back. Which I'm super thankful for what he did. But friends, if you were in that same situation, God's love would do the same for you. Let me read this to you real quick. It's from his book um, called Tortured for Christ. He said this, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted there the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. That's insanity! That is insanity! But when everything in your life... I mean, Richard didn't have the opportunity to do things immoral. I mean, he was stuck in a prison cell, chained. There's not much you can do in sin, I guess, other than curse God. But what was it that centered him? It was the hope of Christ. It's the hope of Christ. Now, you compare this to our situation. And this is going to sound crazy, because it sounded crazy when I wrote it down. I think our context is harder than Richard's. Here's why. Richard was faced with the reality... Of the need for Christ every single moment. 
And you and I will walk out of here. And there is so much that can grab our affection. So much. Entertainment. Prestige. Comforts of life. So much. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're okay. Because we're not at least a bad person. But our hearts are slowly and slowly and slowly drifting away from this connection that we have with Christ. It's kind of easy to be a semi-morally good person in our culture because most people around here are good. Especially in Spring Hill. Not Columbia though. There's bad things that go down on there apparently. I live in Columbia by the way. <laughs> I think that in our context, if we're not careful to protect the love of Christ in us, we will easily slip away and not obey his commands. And that connection that we have with Christ is other affections. This is why John writes in Revelation, what happened, church? You lost your first love. What happened? They lost the connection. And the connection was the gospel. What you need is not to be comforted. You don't need a better job. You don't need more money. You don't need anything else than Christ. In prison, everything was stripped from him. So he realized, all I have is Christ. And as he was being beaten, that's what he said in his book, that's what I would say. All I have is Christ. I'm not my own. I have nothing. I don't own anything. I don't have anything. My family's been taken away. In our context, we have everything. You can order on Amazon tomorrow. You can, you know, you can buy a car on Amazon. I don't recommend it. So, as a church, when we come together, it is vital that we remind ourselves: all we have is Christ. Nothing else matters. And friend, if you find yourself not obeying the commands of loving God and loving your others, then obey the third command, which is to repent today. And be restored and be reminded that there's joy in Christ. I mean, let's get ready for the table. This is absolutely why we take the table. Absolutely every week. We take the table because it reminds us of our connection. It does not provide the connection. It does not strengthen the connection. It reminds us of the connection. Literally, Jesus says, take my flesh and eat it. Take my blood and drink it. For I am life. I am living water. I am the bread of life. So every week we come and we remind ourselves that without Christ's blood and body, we would have no reason to celebrate this connection that we have with God. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this hope. We pray that you will bless us now as we dine with you. In Jesus' name, amen.